Okay. Well, good evening, everybody. Let's uh, go ahead and open uh, with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity we have to uh, gather together uh, to study and uh, learn and grow. We ask that your spirit would be with us, that you would give us wisdom and understanding, and uh, that you would help us as we think through some of these uh, topics of gluttony and, and chastity, that we would um, that uh, we would grow in our, our understanding of, of how you would um, desire us to live and uh, how we may grow in our, our faith and uh, uh, in our walk with Christ. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So this evening, we'll be looking at letters 17 and 18. And uh, as I mentioned in the prayer, uh, our topics for this evening in letter 17 is going to be focusing on the topic of gluttony. And in uh, letter 18, we'll be focusing on the topic of uh, chastity and marriage and uh, things like that. So we look at uh, letter 17. Uh, normally, when we think about gluttony, we, we think about what, uh, what Lewis talks about as you know, that gluttony of excess. Um, and that's just what first comes to mind, the idea of overeating or overindulging, um, things like that. That's what we normally think of when we think of uh, the sin of gluttony. And Lewis will turn to that and talk a little bit about um, how that, uh, uh, the main use of that gluttony of excess, how screw tape uh, sees that operating uh, in human beings. But that's not what he starts with. He actually starts with something different that uh, is something probably a little less familiar with uh, to us. And this is uh, what he t- calls about or calls this gluttony of delicacy. Gluttony of delicacy. Um, this isn't something we think about very often when we, we think about uh, gluttony. And personally, I found this a, a very fascinating section uh, as he was talking about uh, what he meant by this. Um, gluttony of delicacy in particular has to do with a, a, a particular way in which the, the stomach controls the appetite. Uh, you know, for, for excess, it controls uh, the stomach by this, this constant desire of more, of just wanting more and more. Or along with that, just kind of the, the lack of uh, self-control and discipline, just kind of the, the, the craving aspect of it. But the gluttony of delicacy is a little bit different. It has to do with a, a certain uh, standard of the desire, that the, you know, the desire is particular in what it wants, and that the partic- uh, that the uh, the desire is not satisfied unless those wants are actually met. Now this could you know, there's a lot of different ways you could look at this. Um, you know you've got the aspect that uh, if something doesn't meet a certain quality level, um, you see that in some of the examples that uh, Lewis uses. Um, so for example, the uh, the patient's mother, uh, she wanted things to be done a certain way. You know, she wanted it to be a, a particular way, and she would make everyone miserable unless it was done a certain way. It wasn't necessarily, you know, the idea of a, a certain amount, because she wouldn't want too much. She wanted, you know, a, a, a small portion very often. Um, but she wanted it to be done particularly. You know, she wanted, you know, all she wanted was a little tea, but she wanted that tea to be exactly the way she wanted it. She had a, a certain... Uh, hunger and, and craving that wasn't for an amount, but it was the way that she liked it, and she would complain and make everyone, I mean, cooks were quitting on her, you know, waitresses were afraid of her because of how particular she was about things, and her appetite and desire so drove her that she would make everyone miserable if, it, if, her, if her appetite 
wasn't met. Uh, Lewis calls this the all-I-want state of mind. It kind of has a, a little bit of an unassuming nature. You know, all I want is just this little thing. But if you don't get it, you're, you're incredibly uh, upset and, and miserable to, to be around. And so this is a, a little bit of a, a different way to think about it. But I think Lewis is right in terms of, you know, if, if gluttony as a, a larger category has to do with, you know, the desires of our stomachs, you know, the, the desires of our bodies, it's not just about lack of self-control in terms of amount. It also has to do with being so... Uh, of it place of, of the desires of our body having such a primary place within us that we aren't content or satisfied unless that's met. That's something you know we can see that uh, all around us. Uh, I mean the the um, the, uh, the patient's mothers. It's probably we've probably known some people uh, like that in our lifetimes. And of course, then he goes on to talk about uh, another aspect of this form of gluttony is. Uh, also has to do with, you know, just one's disposition and connected to the particular thing they desire. So um, with, the, uh, with the mother, it's kind of she wants it done in a particular way. But then as, he go, as Lewis is going on to talk about, you know, how this often plays out with men, and he talks about vanity of, uh, you know, knowing, you know, which places properly cook steaks and things like that, uh, he goes on to talk about um, your goal, the great thing, uh, to have happen in the end is to bring the man into the state in which the denial of any one indulgence, it matters not which one, could be champagne or tea, uh, Sol Colbert, which is some kind of a fish dish, cigarettes, whatever it is. Um, but if that person is denied what it is they want, that indulgence that they want, it quote-unquote puts him out. For then his charity, justice, and obedience are all at your mercy. Uh, and so this is, a, is an aspect as well, that uh, our appetites, our desires can become so controlling in our lives that any lack of them then becomes a major, you know, it, it changes us. It makes us disagreeable. It makes us that we, we don't have charity towards others. We don't care about justice and right and wrong. We don't care about obeying God or anything like that. We just want what we want. And we just want to have, you know, our, our desires and cravings met. That's not a, a, a good thing at all. And uh, this is something that's important for us to, to think about. Our, our God is not to be our stomachs. And we can think about what Paul talks about, how he learns to be content in all the circumstances he finds himself under. You know, I mean, he gets beaten a bunch of times. He gets stoned a bunch of times. He gets shipwrecked a bunch. He's got to, you know, flee a city out of a basket to save his life. You know, I mean, He's been in jail a bunch. Those are not comfortable circumstances. And yet he talks about how he's learned the secret of being content in every one of those situations he finds ourselves finds himself in. And yet, how often is it that we, when we're inconvenienced in the slightest little way and made to be, feel uncomfortable, all of a sudden we're just, we're all put out. We're all frustrated. You know, if a, uh, I don't want to step on too many people's toes, but, you know, if we don't get our cup of coffee in the morning, you know, like, uh, how much does that, like, destroy our day? Um, you know, we need to be, be careful. Yes, these can be good things. You know, these things that, um, these, these good things and pleasures we get to enjoy in this life, there's nothing wrong about enjoying good food. 
Nothing wrong about enjoying, you know, a cup of tea or things like that. It has to be put in its, its proper place. And so this is the, the first thing Lewis focused on is just this gluttony of delicacy, of um, the particular way in which sometimes our stomachs control our appetites and desires. After this, he goes on uh, towards the end of the letter. He, he returns to the issue of gluttony of excess. But he doesn't really focus on that, uh, but rather he talks about what's the main danger of the gluttony of, of excess. Uh, what is the, the main use which Satan takes that, and, and how does he try to operate with it? And the main thing he talks about there is that its chief use is a kind of uh, artillery preparation for attacks on chastity. And again, this may be something that you know, on the surface is not our, our first thought to connect gluttony and, and chastity together, but this actually uh, connects very well with uh, our message this past Sunday morning on uh, Genesis 25 with Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of soup. Because the connection that Hebrews 12 makes is it connects it to sexual immorality when he sold his birthright. And this all kind of connects together, and this is a a historical thing of the way the church has often viewed these issues, that you've got this category of the desires of the body, which so often get expressed in the most powerful ways in terms of the desire for food and the desire uh, for fleshly pleasures. Those are the, are the main uh, physical desires that we have. And as Christians, we are called to demonstrate self-control and discipline over our bodies and over desires. And so this issue of gluttony and chastity are, are very closely connected because they feed into each other. Uh, I didn't mean that in a punny way, but you know they, they do. They're connected together. They influence each other. And that's the point that Screwtape's making here. Your, your gluttony of excess, its main use, you know, it's not just about getting the person fat, but it's about preparing that person for other attacks on chastity, where they don't have self-control over the desires of their body. They don't have, uh, they're, they're more susceptible to those kinds of attacks. And this is something that, you know, Lewis has made uh, uh, this point in other places, and he makes it here as well, that there's a, a connection between the physical, our physical bodies and the, the spiritual aspect as well, that sometimes we're susceptible to attacks on our chastity because of physical issues that we're going through, such as what we're eating and drinking. And often we think, well, it's just a, you know, it's just a spiritual thing, it's just about the thought of our minds and things like that. It's like, no, these uh, you know, issues with our body do connect uh, to these spiritual disciplines and issues as well. And so if one, uh, I, th I think this is a, an important point we can make, if one is struggling with chastity, it would probably be valuable to do a self-inventory on uh, the issues of how is it that you're, uh, you're doing in your life in terms of your relationship with food and drink and, and things like that. Because it's possible that we have been weakened and made susceptible due to these attacks of, uh, or compromises in the area of gluttony of excess and things like that. This also connects, and this is a, a point I made on Sunday morning, that fasting is an, a, an important solution to this issue along with other means of disciplining and exercising control of our bodies. Physical exercise can be part of that as well. Now, these are means that we can use to, uh, to practice and develop the habits of self-control, of discipline, 
of being willing to set boundaries and limits and not go beyond those so that when there are greater temptations about the desires of the flesh, one is able to say no in the end. And then this letter uh, concludes. Uh, it talks a little bit about physical uh, exercise, uh, but he makes the point that physical exercise in excess and then the fatigue from that uh, are actually hindrances to chastity. And he's like, you know, often people think, well, if that's an issue, you just need to work yourself to the bone and tie yourself out, and then you won't be able to, to fall in this way. And he's like, look at the examples of soldiers and seamen who are some of the most gross violators of this, and yet they're some of the most hard-worked people and exhausted in a lot of ways. They've got no problems violating chastity. So exhaustion is not a friend in the end. And so I think there is a point here. Physical exercise is good, but not physical exercise in excess. Uh, because exhaustion makes us more susceptible to temptations in the end. All right, so that's letter uh, 17, this issue of, of gluttony. Then it connects some with chastity, and we'll, we'll come to that topic here again in, in letter 18. But any questions, comments, any observations, anything someone wants to, to bring out from this letter? Yes, Terry. You're exactly right. Um, that first part of uh, gluttony of delicacy, children of Israel. Yeah, that, man, that's exactly what's going on there. You know, God has given you bread from heaven, and you're like, oh, man, I wish I had some meat. Like, not being satisfied with the provision that God's given. That's a, actually, that's a perfect example of what Lewis is talking about here. Yeah. Did I hear correctly? Um, you were saying that when Esau sold his birthright, that was tied into sexual immorality? Yeah, Hebrews chapter 12 talks about that. Yeah. So Hebrews chapter 12, um, verse 16. Um, well, I'll start in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And so there you have, you know, don't become sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And then it quotes, or then it, and then it references, um, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So there you have that selling of the birthright for a single meal and that issue of uh, sexual immorality being connected together. And the, the, the connection there is that desires of the flesh. You know, Esau looks, he sees that it's good, he craves it, he wants it, and he's willing to sell for it. And that's the same kind of sin that happens with unchastity. Um, you know, you see, you desire, you crave it, and you're willing to sell to have it. Um, yep, David and Bathsheba is a, a, a good example of that. Was Esau noted for his sexual immorality in the Bible? So. Um, so Esau, mm, I, I can't think of any, well, let me put it this way. Uh, not explicitly that I can think of like that. Now, uh, later on, he does marry uh, two, I believe, two Canaanite women. Uh, so you do have polygamy with him later on. Uh, Actually, I'm blanking now. It may have been one Canaanite woman, and then later on he marries an Ishmael, a descendant of Ishmael. 
Um, but at the very least, at some point, uh, he ended up with more than one wife. And then also that intermarrying with the Canaanites becomes a particular thorn in the side of Isaac and Rebecca and causes them a lot of, a lot of grief. Which, of course, is a theme that you find throughout the Old Testament, that issue of intermarrying with those outside of the covenant, which you're not supposed to do. Um, and that will actually come up a little bit in the, letter, the end of letter 18 as well. Yeah. Any other comments, questions, observations? All right, let's look at uh, letter 18. Letter 18, as I, I mentioned, has to do with the, the topic of uh, chastity and, uh, and marriage. I uh, see at the beginning here of the letter, there's this um, screw tape notes of uh, what God's design is uh, for human beings. Uh, he has a particular demand on human beings, and it's either complete abstinence or unmitigated monogamy. Uh, Screwtape talks about how Satan has, in many ways, already made great progress in making uh, abstinence a particularly difficult, uh, difficult thing for human beings. Um, uh, ever since the first great victory, which is uh, talking about Genesis chapter 3. But then he goes on to talk about a, a particular attack that's happening on monogamous marriage uh, in this day and age. And, you know, Lewis is talking here in the 1940s. What he talks about here is just as common, if not worse today, uh, than it was then. And the, the particular attack is this concept of, of being in love. Uh, being in love, of course, has a, a lot of, you know, these emotional connotations. You know, if you want to, you know, get Disney about it, you know, the idea of getting Twitter-pated. You know, all the butterflies you have in your heart when you see someone that you like and, and things like that. You know, it's this emotional attraction and, and connection that happens. It's, and that sometimes can be very intense. And, uh, and Screwtape says, you know, that one of the things that they're doing is they, they try to, uh, they're, they're convincing human beings that this thing called being in love is the criteria for whether one should get married or not. You decide who your spouse is based on this emotional feeling that you have towards that person. And, of course, the problem with that is that, um, well, there's a lot of problems with that, but um, one of those is that this feeling, th those feelings don't last. You know, that, uh, that initial romantic attraction that many people experience, it only lasts for a little while. So you have this language of falling in love and falling out of love and, you know, the, the fire has gone out and, and things like that. And then, of course, you know, this idea of being in love, not only is it the criteria for whether you should marry a person or not, but then it becomes the benchmark of a good marriage. Uh, it's the idea that these feelings should be permanent. Uh, if these feelings subside, then this marriage is no longer binding. You know, if you, if you love somebody for a while and you get married and you, you, know, you live together for a while and then, you know, there's some difficulties and hardships and you, you don't feel those feelings anymore, but then you start to feel those feelings for someone else, well, I guess that's who you're supposed to be with now. And there's no problem with, you know, just, you know, we grew apart and just separating and then going and marrying someone else. And you can see once marriage starts to be, it's, it's not about the commitment. It's not about any of those godly designs for marriage that we'll talk about in a moment. But once marriage becomes about this emotional experience and feeling that a person has, and then the continual maintaining of that feeling, 
it's very easy for marriage to suddenly become something that's easy. Easy to get into, easy to get out of, easy to get back into again. And in America, it's, you know, you have that embodied in no-fault divorce. It's not that one party did something to harm the other party. Not that they, you know, were unfaithful or was a terrible person or anything like that. It's just, you know, it's no one's fault. We're just not attracted to each other anymore. So let's just, you know, go our separate ways, 50-50, and see what happens after that. You know, see, see who you suddenly start to feel feelings for then. That destroys God's intention and purpose in marriage. And uh, Lewis, from uh, from that point in the, the chapter, is going to start to, to talk about a, a contrast of hell's vision for humanity and, and God's vision for humanity. And in many ways, what he's doing here is he's, he's responding to this issue of being in love and, and setting us up for that. Uh, Lewis is not saying that the emotional attraction and you know desire you have for a spouse is bad or anything like that. But he's saying we have to put it in its proper place. And in particular, it is not the basis for a marriage because God's design is that that's often the product of marriage, not the foundation for it. We'll explain some of that in a moment. So you have this uh, this issue being raised of you know hell um, advocating for this uh, destruction of monogamy uh, by this you know making being in love the criteria and benchmark for a good marriage. So then he starts to, to contrast these two philosophies: the philosophy of hell and the the philosophy of God. Hell's desire for people is to live lives of selfish competition. Uh, that's the, the whole point. That paragraph about the whole philosophy of hell, uh, that's the, the conclusion in the end. You know, one person's good is not the same as another person's good. There's always conflict. There's battle. Uh, there's give and take between people. And your desire is essentially uh, to look out for number one. And then in the concluding sentence of that paragraph is this, to be, which means to exist, means to be in competition. To exist means that you are in competition with other people. And that's essentially how our culture lives today. Because all of it says in the end is that what's most important is what you feel, think, desire, want. It's all about the individual self. That's it. Marriage is not about mutual help. It's not about a unity. It's not about building something or anything like that. Marriage is about you experiencing or getting things out of a marriage. And if you aren't getting those anymore, it's okay to leave. It's okay to go out on your own because it's all about you in the end. And so that's what hell wants. Hell wants people to live in this selfish competition, this always fighting and climbing over other people and things like that. The God's design for humanity is this idea of love, and in particular, this, this mutual benefit and uh, you know, living together. It talks about this, you know, the, the good of oneself is to be the good of another. This possibility he calls love in the same uh, monotonous panacea, or panacea uh, which is a questionable remedy, uh, a questionable remedy for all problems. So 
uh, the same monotonous uh, remedy can be detected under all he does and even all he is. And you've got this idea, God is love. And um, at the end of that paragraph, he introduces into matter that obscene invention, the organism, in which the parts are perverted from their natural destiny of competition and made to cooperate. This is the idea that um, Screwtape is saying this is not how things are supposed to be, but this is how he you know, says he wants them to be, such that different things can work together coherently and for mutual benefit as a cohesive whole. Now that's, that's, I mean, harmony and living together for the benefit of each other was how God created the world to be. And then uh, he goes on to talk about this in uh, the state of marriage. God has, um, actually he starts to connect this to, uh, to, to sex in particular. Hell wants sex to look like their vision for humanity of just competition of, uh, of getting something for yourself. He uses this analogy of the, the spider. He talks about, um, you know, it'd be, it'd be one thing if sex was just about the stronger uh, self-preying upon a, a weaker, or a stronger self-preying upon a weaker self, as in spiders, when the, you know, the, the, the female spider afterwards eats the male spider. You know, that's what hell wants that to look like. Um. But that's not how God's designed it. God has designed, has designed that physical intimacy to produce affection between human beings. And in fact, there, there have even been scientific studies that have demonstrated just the, you know, the, the natural biological process, the hormones that are produced after this that you know, attract you know, husbands and wives together. They're, they're, you know, it's, it's part of how God made it, of this uniting together. And then, of course, this then plays itself out into so the, the whole home, where, um, you know, generally speaking, the you know um, the normal result of human marriage is then procreation as well, and you have these offspring that are dependent upon the the parents, and the parents have this you know the strong impulse to support and to care for these children, and you have then this family unit, which is a unit of love and self-sacrifice. It's not a unit of competition like what Hell says relationships are supposed to look like. It's a, it's, a, it's a unit of love and support and sacrifice for each other, of love and a mutual benefiting of each other, helping each other together. And so God's design um, for sex in that proper sphere produces this really beautiful and, and wonderful thing. Now, of course, you have the aspect that you know, the world has fallen, and so it doesn't always look as good as it's supposed to, and this isn't to say there aren't difficulties, but that's the natural design and, and order that's supposed to come. And one of the ways you have this uh, embodied and talked about in the scriptures is the idea of, of one flesh, that that physical act is bigger than just that physical act. There's a, a union that happens. And Lewis makes the, the point here um, when God describes that in the Bible, he did not say a happily married couple or a couple who married because they were in love. He said that the married, any married couple becomes one flesh. And even beyond that, you have an aspect that even if a couple isn't married, if they perform that action, there is something that happens there beyond just the physical interaction. 
Screw Tape says, the truth is that wherever a man lies with a woman there, whether they like it or not, a transcendental relation is set up between them, which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. Of course, this is a, a reference to what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 6.16, where he's, uh, you know, he's talking about this issue, and he says, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And then he goes on to quote Genesis 2.24, because the two shall become one flesh. This is why promiscuity is such a devastating, it's so devastating in general, and we see all that devastation happening in our society with the sexual revolution and free love and all this. Because God has designed this to work within a particular relationship and to produce particular things. And when you divorce it from it, there are still things that happen when two join together. You, there is a one flesh union that does happen that's bigger than just, you know, that moment. And then, of course, you've got all these things, you know. The epidemic of fatherlessness in our culture is a product of this. When you have all of this promiscuity happening and then you have all these broken family units, all of that's happening because you're not following the way that God designed this to happen. So the big lie in the end on Satan's part, or one of the big lies in the end, is this, uh, this emphasis of the emotional, the emotional infatuation of being in love, and that being then, well, even to go beyond uh, Lewis, in terms of our free love society of today, that idea of just the emotional infatuation is enough for anything to occur, not just marriage in the end. Uh, but in particular, for the, the degradation of marriage, this idea of being in love has had incredibly devastating consequences. And Screwtape closes this chapter by talking about uh, two advantages of this, that this emphasis on being in love and how that should be the, you know, the, the foundation for marrying and things like that, there's two advantages for, uh, for hell that that produces. The first is that humans who do not have the gift of continence can be deterred from marriage because they aren't in love. You know, if they, they, if they can't find a spouse that they you know, feel attracted to, even though, as Paul says, they need to get married because it's better to, uh, to, uh, to get married than to burn, they don't do it. This is not uh, a biblical concept. We have to remember God has designed marriage with purposes. You have you know, the loyalty the companionship, the, the mutual help, the building up of each other. Um, for the uh, our purpose is the preservation of chastity and for procreation. These are all good things, which are purposes of marriage, which should be desired, that don't really fall into that category of just being in love. And so you can have a marriage that is founded on those sincere intentions, even without you know that that Disney picture. Of what you know, of what every every dream is, you know, to feel that strong emotional uh, attachment and feelings. Why is that? Well, the reason is because the acts of marriage and the unity within marriage are designed to produce those kinds of affections. We've gotten it backwards. The affections are not the foundation for a marriage. A good marriage founded on the principles of what God wants marriage to be like. Those are the foundations which produce 
those good affections. And in fact, uh, you know, it's often those who um, who've been married for for decades and decades, especially Christian marriages that you know have those strong foundations. You know, there's a, a bond and love and affection that is way beyond what high schoolers or you know twenty year old romances can even imagine of what love looks like, of, of the of the depth of those affections. There's a lot more that could be uh, could be said about that, but that's you know one of the uh, one of the advantages that Screw Tape says here is that uh, humans who need to marry put off marriage because they don't have this uh, emotional attachment. We should not um, that should not be uh, an issue for us. The second uh, second advantage is this: any infatuation which intends marriage will be seen as love and as something that's okay, even if not a good marriage. What this means is you'll have people who will marry other people who shouldn't be marrying them, but because they have this emotional feeling, they'll gloss over and ignore all those other issues. Uh, probably the you know the quintessential of that for the church is when you have someone who claims to be a Christian then marrying a non-Christian. That is not what we're supposed to do. From many for many parts of the scriptures, whether you're looking at the Old Testament examples or not being unequally yoked in the New Testament, but why is it that we excuse it? Well, we ex- you know people will excuse it and gloss over that issue because of infatuation. That infatuation is not your foundation for a good marriage. The purposes of God are your foundation, and so people will end up marrying poorly based on this infatuation, and the result will be that they have to carry that burden if they end up in a bad marriage uh, as a result of it. And, of course, there's some other things there uh, that, that Lewis talks about, you know, whether it's marrying a heathen, a fool, or wanton, uh, and that's a topic he'll come back to uh, later on. So as Christians, it's important for us to, to get this straight. The emotions are not the foundation for a good marriage. The foundation of a good marriage are the purposes of God. And as we strive to have godly marriages, the normal natural process will produce emotional responses. Now, it's not always perfect, though. We live in a sinful world. Marriages are difficult. My grandparents were married for about 75 years, and uh, my grandfather's advice was that, well, how do you get married for this long? You learn to fight. For your marriage, fight for your marriage, um, because it's not easy, and you have to be willing to go through the hard stuff and battle and struggle to get there. And even towards the end, I mean, my my grandmother, um, there are some difficult years towards the end when she was struggling with uh, dementia and some other, um, you know, severe memory issues. And um, yeah. Um, but that important point is that we, we fight, and we fight in the strength that God gives us to grow our marriages and to be godly. And they will produce good fruit in the end, but we need to get the order right. Okay, that's letter 18. Any comments, questions, observations, anything from, any, from uh, anything we've talked about today? Yeah, Randy. It's ironic that uh, C.S. Lewis married when he married his wife. He married her. He wasn't in love with her. She wanted to become a citizen of England. Mm. So he married well, she, her. She didn't want to go back to the U.S. Her visa had run out. 
Yeah. She had two boys. Right. right. So he made he married her for convenience sake for right. her. Right. He did end up falling very much in love with her. Yep. Uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I presume uh, Randy's pointing out, you know, for Lewis, uh, he did uh, he married for uh, a certain convenience and uh, did end up falling in, in love with his wife in a certain sense. But uh, um, in many ways, he kind of it. Uh, excuse me. His life pictures a little bit of uh, of what we're talking about in this letter. And another point I didn't mention, but you know, as you look at different civilizations throughout history, why is it that arranged marriages have been so common? Well, probably because they worked, generally speaking. Not that there weren't bad arranged marriages, but. You know, there's a lot of cultures, and you, we look at it strangely, like, you know, how could you do that? How could you marry someone if you've never seen them before or, you know, anything like that? I mean, Rebecca and Isaac was an arranged marriage. Isaac didn't meet her until she had traveled all that distance and got off the camel, and that's the first time. I mean, and for her, she left everything to go and meet this guy she'd never seen before. But for us, that's crazy. But it's, historically, it's not actually that crazy. And of course, one of the first things you read is that Isaac loved her. And Disney has done us, has done us a lot of disfavors uh, when it comes to this issue of love and marriage. Um, because you have this idea of this, this fronting of the emotions. I mean, even Song of Solomon says, don't awaken love until the time is right. And uh, I think there's a, a certain wisdom there um, that we've placed way too much value and importance on the emotions. And that's a lie from Satan because the emotions come and go. There are high points and there are low points. If marriage is dependent on emotions, no one's going to stay married because there is going to come a time when you don't like your spouse. You're sinners. You're not going to like each other at some point. Um, so anyway, yeah, I could say more about that, but I'll stop. <laughs> Any other uh, questions? It's yeah. The definition of what love is. Yeah. Because infatuation is not love. Yeah. The, the love that Christ has for his church is like the love of marriage. Christ never gives up on his church. Yep, yep. We are faithful to him. He's always faithful. Yeah, yeah, it's a very good point. I presume um, a lot of it comes down, to, uh, it's about our definition of love. That love is not just an emotion, but it has to do, I think specifically it has to do with a, a commitment towards the good of the other. That's what Jesus has for us. He desires our good, and so he gave himself to save us from hell and, and to to marry us, to make us his bride, to, you know, to, to bring us to heaven. Um, you know, greater love hath no man than this, than he would give up his life for his friend. That's ultimate sacrificing of yourself for the good of the other. Uh, that's what love's about. And that's, you know, in marriage, this comes back to this vision of humanity from hell and the vision of humanity from God. Hell wants us to live in selfish competition. Hell wants husbands and wives to be thinking about what am I going to get out of this marriage and not care about the serving and caring for the other. 
that which is that's what marriage is supposed to embody the self-sacrificing of the two becoming one and serving and loving each other to be a, a unified good whole um yeah terry i think Attacks on that are so severe because I believe because marriage and family are the foundational building blocks of the society. Yeah. So to get at that, he's got this upper where you're having these foolish marriages and things like that. To get at the core and foundation, that's the way I see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, you're exactly right. You know. The family unit is that kind of foundational building block for all society. And, uh, and as he's attacking marriage and love and all those things, that's able then to destroy everything else. And, uh, and that's what's happened in our country. You know, Why is our society the way it is today? Our society is the way it is today because of the destruction of family that happened back in the sexual revolution. And it's just going to keep getting worse and worse unless God interferes and does something or something else you know, crazy happens. So. Any other comments, questions, thoughts? All right. As I uh, close this in prayer this evening,